Welcome to the Adventure Options Podcast. You want adventures and you have options. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jeff Manchester, who is one of the co-founders of Intrepid. Intrepid just happens to be the world's largest adventure travel company and a world leader in sustainable tourism. Stick around to find out what made Jeff say, wow, I have never been asked that before. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by Adventure Writers. There are 4.6 billion web pages out there. How will yours stand out? Visit adventurewriters.agency for help. That's adventure, W-R-I-T-E-R-S dot agency. Now for the show. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, hi, and uh, it's great to be talking to you. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Why don't you go ahead and tell them who you are? Oh, okay. So I'm one of the co-founders and director of uh, the Intrepid Group. So the Intrepid Group comprises um, half a dozen different brands, but our really big brand is Intrepid Travel, uh, which Daryl and I founded 30 years ago. Uh, And it's now... um, suddenly well not suddenly it's now uh the biggest adventure travel company in the world and carries uh a couple of hundred thousand people uh to around 120 destinations around the world each year yeah no but no big deal just the biggest travel company in the world not adventure travel adventure travel company not (laughs) travel company company in the world yes (laughs) so one thing that i love you can read all about your story on your website which i've done and I think I remember it all started with a trip to Africa, right? That's you, right. You and yes. Daryl were going to take a trip to Africa. Why don't you tell me about that? So um, that was in 1988. And at that time, um, oh, very long overland trips were quite a big thing for, for travellers. There was a lot of um, Kathmandu to London and London to Cape Town type travel. And a lot of mainly British um, overland companies were called that did those sort of trips. But... Um, a group of us here in, in Australia decided we wanted to do something like that but do it ourselves rather than through a commercial company. So we got together a group of 16 people and like we created a cooperative, everyone put in a bit of money and we bought an old um, city council tipper truck and we took that out and put it on an orchard outside Melbourne and we spent six months stripping it down and rebuilding it, putting in a new engine, long-range fuel tanks, long-range water tanks, Heaps of storage and things. Yeah, did you and put beds in it and stuff like that, or just? No, no, it didn't have beds. It had seats and lots of storage, but okay. um, no, we had um, tents and um, stretches for sleeping, okay. and um, and so then we put that truck on a ship and it went by deck cargo on a polar ship to London, and we all flew over to London. Then um, we got it set up there, and we spent six months uh, driving that truck uh, from London down right through Africa down to uh, down to Nairobi in Kenya. Okay, and was there any part of that trip, the driving it down, where you thought, what have I done? <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? That sounds like oh, yeah. a scary drive, and maybe that's oh. <laughs> from the news nowadays, but I'm thinking, I don't know if I would drive that route right now. <laughs> oh, well, you, you wouldn't, and I guess one of the amazing things, well, to answer your question, there was, I'm sure it was plenty of times we thought, what the hell are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. But the amazing thing, at that time, it was it was safe to do it, but really since then you haven't been able to do a few very significant parts of it. And, you know, the, I guess the most well-known one is the Sahara Desert. It's been virtually impossible to cross the Sahara Desert from probably the last 20 or 25 years. 
And the other one um, was uh, crossing um, what was Zaire, which is now the Congo, and one of the most amazing countries I've ever been to, but that's been totally off limits because the whole country has virtually been um, at civil yeah. war or unmanaged, uh, ungoverned for, for that whole time. So we were, we were really very fortunate with our timing that we were able to, to get through. I mean, we had, you know, I could, I could uh, spend a whole podcast telling stories about each yes, of the border crossings yes, right? and, you know, and things that happened along the way. But, um, but overall, um, uh, the trip ran really well and we learned an amazing amount. And, but it was during that trip that Daryl and I started talking about this concept of some, uh, there being a gap, what we thought was a gap in the market. Um, someone, because we thought, what do people do in their travel lives who aren't confident enough to go backpacking? And for a lot of people, you know, backpacking is quite daunting and it's a hard thing to do. It's, it's quite hard work. And um, it's so, physically exhausting too. It's physically exhausting and, and it's um, emotionally exhausting. And, uh, you know, every second of your night, you don't know where you're going li- to sleep and you've got to go out and find somewhere to sleep and you've got to, um, to organise everything in, as you're going. Right. And so we thought someone should offer a style of travel that's like organised backpacking. <laughs> so, you get the feel of it, but you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. And, and you know, not, not staying at the level of accommodation that backpackers obviously do, you know, the, the real sleeping type things and the, yeah. the hostels, you know, staying better that, than that. But, you know, hotels or guest houses that are clean and comfortable but very basic because you don't need to pay for a lot of the facilities for, that hotels offer. But the main thing was to travel in a style that allowed people to really understand and experience in a, a country warts and all. And because too much tourism, the the travellers are isolated from the local people. A hundred percent. So my husband and I just did our 12-year anniversary trip. Right. 12 years. (laughs) It's well done. (laughs) We felt quite accomplished. And um, we went to Mexico and we thought, let's do an all-inclusive. It's easy. It's everything's just ready in there. And I was so sad because there was no Mexican food at the all-inclusive oh. Mexican <laughs> vacation. I thought, what are we? Yeah. What are we doing? Like, so my husband yes, and I rented a rented a little car, which yeah. is scary in and of itself in a foreign country yes. to rent a car and and hope for the best. <laughs> but uh, we decided to just drive out into like the little towns and eat at the little towns and visit with the local people. We both speak Spanish, so we had that advantage. Right. But it just was it. It was not what we were expecting when we were thinking yes. Mexico and, and nothing against all inclusives. They can be very relaxing, but I understand what you're saying. Something that actually connects you to the people who live there versus plops you in, in a really nice hotel where you, I mean, you could be anywhere and you wouldn't know it. Oh, well, that's right. And look, and there's another really important aspect of that to do with the, um, the benefit of tourism. So if you go to a place which is an all-inclusive place, it's probably in a property that is owned and run by a multinational company. Right. The food isn't local food, so it's a lot not. of it's probably imported. <laughs> yeah. And so there's very little benefit would flow to that community in Mexico from that tourism. Yeah. Whereas when you went and rented the car, um, you would have gone and stayed probably in much more 
it was smaller hotels were owned by families who were staying in local, eating in local restaurants, and the benefit of tourism then flows down to, to that community. To and that's, that's really, really important, especially in these days of the over-tourism where, where local communities are just getting jack of it because they're getting all the negative side and not enough of the, the benefit. And, and when, isn't that what you call sustainable tourism? Oh, ultimately, it's that's part of the sustainability of tourism because um, it's got to benefit the local communities and to be um, able to be done in the in the long term because right. uh, tourism has that risk of um, of losing the social license to operate. Uh, you know, it's almost like that in Venice. No one wants tourists there anymore because it's just overrun. Yeah, it's not it's not the the Venice of yesteryear. <laughs> it's not the Venice of yesteryear, that's right. <laughs> so I want to hear more about your relationship with Daryl, because I think in most of the things that I read online and saw online, you mentioned Daryl quite a bit. So tell me about your relationship with him previous to Intrepid starting and then all the way through Intrepid. Okay, so I guess um, Daryl and I first met when we were at university. Okay. We were both studying commerce. Um, at Melbourne University, although it probably wasn't so much the faculty as the fact that we were living in a in a college, a living college at the university. So we we became friends then, uh, and and got along really well right from the start. Um, and then we finished our degrees. We both got jobs, and um, and then uh, went travelling together in Africa. And um, just we we have very common outlook on life. I guess we're very very different people, but bit of a common background, common outlook on life. And we talked about this concept of starting a business together and we both felt like we were um, each, the other was someone that they could go into business with. And we did that and and it has worked. And like, I think it's only in the last five years or so that I've realised how, because people have always said to us, it's amazing that you're still together. And I thought, well, why? But you do realise after so long there's not many business partnerships that do last that long. And I think that's what intrigued me about it is I know yeah. quite a few business partnerships that have been successful, but all, they end up breaking up. It's just it's it's almost like having another spouse that you have to get along with for a very long time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And I guess it's that it is like that. And um, I guess... We have been very good at not necess- not interfering too much on on each other's area of the business, and not being too dogmatic. If we if we disagree in, in something, just somehow somehow work it out, and right. you know, not being too fixated on who who whose whose idea gets through or who makes the ultimate decision. In the longer term, again, um, you know, any individual decision isn't necessarily that important. And, and and also, I guess we've also had the ability to hand over responsibility to other people. So mm-hmm. along the way, so that we're not necessarily um, making all the decisions all the time. Other people can be doing that, and and we we can continue on doing what we want to do. That's awesome. So let's go back to Africa. You're there. You talk to Daryl. You say, "Hey, this is this is what's missing in the market. Let's do it." How do you go from concept to reality? Well, it was quite interesting because in Africa, um, I was one of the three drivers of the truck. And so, you know, you'd be driving for hours and hours and hours across the Sahara Desert. And each day, everyone's sitting in the back of the truck. But each day you'd have a couple of people sitting in the front in the cab with you and you'd be chatting away. And Daryl had just got married. So occasionally he and his wife would be sitting there. And we started talking, throwing around 
ideas of if we created this travel company, how would we, what would we do? And we talked about how, you know, you'd stay at cheap but clean and comfortable hotels and guest houses. You'd use local trans, public transport as much as possible, like backpackers do. Um, you'd, you'd create um, uh, the opportunity to have some, some organised activities within the trips and some free time for people to go off and do their own thing so it's not too controlled. Um, and we talk about um, not rushing too much because a lot of organised travel is really rushed and having a bit more time. And what we were actually doing was creating the unique selling points for Intrepid. Without and even knowing it. You're, you're building that a like, business plan and your marketing plan without even knowing it, yeah. Yes, that's right, because, you know, that phrase didn't exist at that time and we didn't know what a business plan was, but we had enough time to really talk in a lot of detail about about what the business would be so that when we got back uh, to Australia and decided, yes, we were going to do it, um, we really knew what we were doing and what we had to do to make it happen. So taking the leap, because you said you had a job at this time, right? Um, no, I didn't have a job. Oh, okay. um, neither of us had jobs because both of us resigned our jobs to go travelling oh, in Africa. The trip. Okay. Well, so it was a little bit different for us. So we got back from travelling and it was, well, do we create a business in, a, in an industry we don't know nothing about or do we go off and get a job? And so it was there. So that's what we had to do. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to do that. So if you could pick the number one business decision you made that you think benefited your business the most, especially in those early years, what do you think it would have been? The number one business decision we made, which wasn't really a decision in some ways, um, and it came about because we didn't know anything about this industry. And that is, with most uh, companies that call themselves tour operators, they're not really tour operators, they're really wholesalers in a way. So if you book to go on a tour of Mexico with a tour operator, they won't be operating that tour. A local company in Mexico will be operating that tour. Yeah, they and that's contract. Just how the, yeah. They contract, that's how the industry works. We didn't know that. When we started, we wanted to take people to Thailand. And... Uh, and that's what we wanted to do. And Daryl, who got married, so he had to stay here and do the sales and marketing. I was the lucky person who got to go and be the leader of our groups in Thailand. And and that worked. And we, then we started employing other people to lead the tours. And, and that was good. And we grew and grew and grew over the years. And in the early 2000s, we got to a stage that um, we were operating throughout Asia at that time. And we probably had 30 or 40 leaders in Vietnam, 40 in Thailand, 20 in China, leaders in Malaysia, Indonesia, India, and they were all managed from Melbourne. And we could see that wasn't sustainable business model, having a manager in Melbourne and all the people reporting to them in, in, uh, in Asia. So we opened a business in Vietnam, which is like a local tour, tour operator. It's called a destination management company or a local operator. So that business um, uh, opened an office and, and employed local people. And it started doing the um, contracting with hotels, arranging the, the transport, employing the leaders, training the leaders, supporting the leaders. And that worked really well. And so then we did a similar thing in Thailand and that worked well. And so we started opening these businesses um, all over Asia and, and by then actually other parts of the world. Um, and that created a, a business model that is barely replicated in the industry. So with a vertically integrated company, where the people who um, run the tour, who have that really, really important contact with the traveller, our customer, they're, they're one of our people. They're not, a, they're not working for some other company. 
they are actually us and that allows us to give the best experience to the to the traveler uh, that they could possibly give well and it gives you further control over the values of the company like the values of our company espouses are also the values that the tour guide is espousing and i think i think that's really important i think that's really cool Yes, absolutely. You, you're totally, totally right. And so, um, so now we have 21 of these destination management companies around the world, and they they op- they operate in more than one country. I think it's about 80 or 90 countries that they run our tours in, and probably carry 90% of our passengers. I mean, there's still plenty of small destinations where we can't justify having one, but probably 90% of our passengers go with one of our own um, our own companies and our own leaders. So did you say that Thailand was the first place that you guys Thailand was our first destination, our first destination and I was the leader, yeah. So why not Africa? Oh, because at that time we wanted we identified this way of traveling like backpackers do using local transport, um, having lots of local experience, but you couldn't do that in Africa because there's not the local transport. Yeah, you So had the reason Jimmy we, really we, you had to have your own truck. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so it was probably about fifteen years before we got back to go back to Africa, and um, and that was again in trucks. It wasn't using local transport. I mean, maybe um, around South Africa you might be able to a little bit, but other than that, you, you just can't. So I think now, since we're talking about Thailand, it would be a good time to talk about your major decision when it comes to elephant rights. Mm-hmm. I yeah. watched. Okay, you made me cry, Jeff. Well, (laughs) your company made me cry. There is a YouTube video about the elephant rides, I'm sure you're aware of, um, that your company puts out, but of the reason why you stopped offering the elephant rides. Do you want to go ahead and and tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, we started doing elephant riding right from the very first trip we we ever did. And people... It sounds exciting, it's and it's what exciting. people want to do. And in fact, it's not that. Ex- well, it's exciting in the in the in the um, in the idea that it's a bit terrifying because you're sitting on this wooden ledge, <laughs> way way up high, yeah. and you've got to hang on for dear life. Yeah. And it's in the mountains, so you're going either up really steeply or down really steeply. You're hanging on, um, but yeah, it's an, it's a great experience. But from time to time, we used to get people who hated it and really loved hated the way the elephants were treated. And um, so we were aware that there was a few issues with elephant riding. And um, through our, uh, our fa- we have a foundation, Intrepid Foundation, and through that foundation we'd been supporting an organisation called World Animal Protection. And World Animal Protection and, and us were talking about what we could be doing, what sort of project with, we could be doing. And they came up with this idea of looking at the use of animals in tourism in Thailand. And so we agreed to support it and they had a, um, I think, a Dutch or German veterinarian um, spend, I think, a year in Thailand and visited every establishment in Thailand that used elephants or tigers or primates in tourism. And there was about 140 of them. And um, in the report you read of those 140, there was only, I think, six that treated the, the, the animals in an at all a humane way. Um, when this report came out, we just it was just obvious that elephant riding shouldn't be happening. And, um, and look, very quickly for a, a whole lot of reasons, but um, one, 
elephants are wild animals. They're not domesticated animals um, right. like horses and donkeys. Uh, they, they just never have been. Right. Um, so they're not bred in, in captivity. So the, the, to get new ones, they're taken from the wild. The way that happens is mothers are shot and then the babies are taken into captivity. Those babies are then tortured, uh, literally tortured, which you saw a very tiny bit of. I know. It, it's a bit of a trigger warning, just a, a warning out there for the audience. I think it's a video that everyone should watch because yeah. it's important to see, you know, how we're treating animals. Uh, but prepare yourself. It's really sad how the, how the elephant. It is really sad. really sad. Yeah. I mean, in that video, I think there's about five seconds it gives you the idea. But if you, if you really want to see it, it's, if you search on, um, on, the, on the crush, it's called the crush, and you get to see in long form exactly what it's about. So the elephants are basically tied up and tortured until they are submissive. Yeah. And then they'll do what the humans want and then to move on. And then um, once they're trained, they then work for excessive number of hours. They're not allowed to socialise enough because elephants are very, very social animals. They're not they allowed to do that. Yes. Um, they don't get fed properly. They don't get the right veterinary care, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we decided um, elephant riding really needs to stop. But it caused a big debate in the company, and we're, you know, we're not an autocratic organisation because we had the um, sales and marketing people saying, if we stop elephant riding, no one will go to Thailand or yeah. India or what are they going ever to again with this. Yeah. And then we had other people in the company who were saying, we've got to stop it right now. We can never use an elephant again. And so what we did, we decided to ask our passengers about it and because we thought, you know, we've always felt that, Elephant riding is really important for passengers, but the survey actually came back that elephant riding was in fact about the sixth or seventh most important point reason for selecting the trip for the passenger. Yeah. So there's other things like, you know, the itinerary, the dates of the trip are really important and, and right. other things. So, um, so we thought, so what we agreed to do was to take the elephant riding out of some of our trips and to leave it in other trips just to see a comparison of what happens and you know if the elephant riding trip suddenly went grew by 100 percent and the others fell away we think well people don't want to do it and if conversely if the elephant riding trips died we think oh it's important but what happened is it had no impact whatsoever and so That's so then that surprising. it is a bit surprising but it, it's reflecting that it's it's not you know one of the three or four most important High on the priorities yeah yeah and so then we took elephant riding out of all our, of our trips it, it it didn't have it didn't have an impact and um, and that happened and then uh, through elephant world animal protection we started publicizing and talking about it in a really big way and then other companies started uh, deciding that yes they needed to stop offering elephant riding as well and it's look to go off track a little bit it's one of those things that really comes back to purpose beyond profit in a business and you know we invested quite a bit of money and a lot of time in in this elephant riding um stopping it but that's really benefited us as a business because people read still read our blogs i mean the blogs about elephant riding are the most important um popular ones we've ever done and any every time there's an incident around the world that involves elephants the media comes to the elephant experts which is intrepid so they come to talk to us all the time oh, no, it's you yeah and it's one of the top five things that pops up when you google your name is, right. yeah. is the video about the elephants yes so yeah, it's, yeah. and i mean as we all know, the one of the trends in adventure tourism nowadays is to feel connected to the adventure yep. that you're going on and connected to the people and to give back to the planet. 
I mean, I, it's just, it's, and I'm so glad that's a trend nowadays that, and I hope, I hope it's not a trend. I hope it just stays that way that we all care care enough about it, that we take care of it and, and the tourism. Yeah. And look, um, it's gone beyond elephants now. And, um, you know, we're working with World Animal Protection about the use of any animal in tourism. And why should we as humans be abusing animals or using animals just for our entertainment? I mean, we shouldn't be. And, you know, the whole um, people having their photograph taken next to lions or tigers, you know, that's just, it's still happening, but it's just abominable because most of the time they're drugged. Yeah. Then you've got the the K, the um canned hunting in Africa of lions and other animals, which comes up now and then. And if, and the other big one is um, uh, dolphins and whales in, in aquariums. World, yeah. I was going to say it actually, when I first saw the video, my instant thought was, this is SeaWorld. This is the yes. elephant version of SeaWorld. Yes. And, it just, and you don't even realize that though, because I've been to SeaWorld several times as a little girl and you don't realize what the animal has gone through so that you can see it do a flip and, and that's right. goes to the ball and stuff and it yeah it's sad yes but i'm glad there's people like you and your company that are fighting yes. for for justice and and world, what was the name of the organization that helped you work? Uh, world animal world animal protection world animal protection so shout out yep. to world animal protection yes we're running on the end of our time here it's been right. so lovely to get to know you but if i could ask you to give your one piece of advice to today's traveler, what would your piece of advice be? Wow. Um, My piece of advice would be to um, try and find things to do that are interesting that aren't the the icons. Because these days with everything on the internet, it's all about lists of top things to see or do or experience. And and it means the icons become much more focused and everyone wants to go and see the icons. And while they're important, they're not necessarily the most rewarding things to go and see. So we have this issue of needing to attract people to our trips. And you sometimes need icons to attract people, but then we put in all these other things that people enjoy much, much more. And I guess it's like, um, you know, like going and seeing the Eiffel Tower or having a... Um, a, a cooking lesson and a lunch with a French family. Right. And the Eiffel Tower will attract the people, but they'll much rather um, have some, they'll much more enjoy doing something with the family. So it's experiencing things rather than seeing things is, is, is what people are moving towards. And, and you need to think about that when you're, when you're planning your trip because you'll enjoy doing things, experiencing things with other people much more than just going, seeing the highlights. Now, did you say that because my shirt has the Eiffel Tower on it? Did you see that? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't see closely enough. Did, did maybe I sub- consciously. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe subconsciously. Um, but, um, you know, it's becoming a huge issue. You know, I mentioned Venice and Barcelona is another one in London, these cities where uh, that are becoming overrun with tourists and they're great places to go. But there's other places that are just as good, if not better, um, and you might miss out on one thing but or go there and see it very quickly uh, and then go to the myriad of other places where you can have a better experience with people. agree with you on that one. That's awesome. Yeah. So to leave us off, why don't you tell us where your favourite non-icon place to be is? Oh, wow, I've never been asked that question. <laughs> That's a really interesting one. 
Um, favorite non icon place to be? Um, oh, that's really hard. Um, I think it's slightly iconic, but not really. Like, um, I love going to and walking in Nepal anytime I can. And, you know, and everyone wants to go and um, walk to Everest Base Camp because that's the iconic thing to do. Right. Um, Which is about uh, as far as I think I would ever get, would be base camp. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, absolutely. I get to the point where I could climb up that thing. <laughs> well, there's a real question of, of that um, Mount Everest tourism is is got a lot going against it. Um, whereas, there's lots and lots of other regions of Nepal to go walking, which um, aren't as iconic, but in a lot of ways more rewarding. And especially in the sense that walking to Everest Base Camp, there's not many communities on the way. Whereas if you go uh, to um, uh, something, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the other areas of, of Nepal, um, I just can't off the top of my head. Um, there's a lot more towns and villages that you're walking through. And you're still in amazingly high mountains that for anyone else in the world would just be on belief. You're still going to get altitude sickness. You're still going to get altitude sickness. That's right. The mountains are incredible, but you're also going to have experiences with some, with local communities. So, so that's a really good one. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you the best with Intrepid and everyone visit Intrepid and go on a, (laughs) go on a tour to Nepal with them. Hey, Shana here. What a fun interview. A few takeaways for me. One, Jeff would be a really fun person to work for. And two, it always pays to be a socially responsible company. As you can tell, I totally forgot to turn my mic on for the interview, but no need to fear. I have course corrected in all the episodes that follow. Visit adventurewriters.agency to join my mailing list and get updates when a new episode airs. Until next time, adios.